of the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 19 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today I'm joined by fellow Doctor Who RPG game master, Ryan Blake. At least that's how we know each other uh, from across the pond to talk about the Borg. How are you, Ryan? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. It's it's uh, pretty cold here at the moment in England. I don't know what it's like where you are. Uh, there's a um, heat wave all of a sudden. You swines. It's been rainy and it's very sunny now, <laughs> you know, at time of recording. So there's a cold snap in like two days, probably. So by the time you listen to this, it'll be cold again. And maybe on your end, it'll be warm. Yeah, you know? I wouldn't take that bet, but thank you. Today, I'm assimilating you into the show, so to speak, uh, because we're doing a, a sort of villain profile. We've never done that before, but we'll look at the Borg, the, the big bad of the TNG era. And uh, before we do that, Ryan, the fans need you to prove your Trek credentials. <clears throat> okay. Can I just say at the start, though, I feel it's very unfair you've pigeonholed the Borg as villains right off the bat. Okay, yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll debate it if you want to. But if you're ready, here's the, here are the questions that everybody has to go through okay. when they first appear on Gimme That Star Trek. So the first one is simple yet, uh, or deceptively simple. It's what does Trek mean to you? What's your connection to Star Trek? Well, Trek, what it means to me can be summed up in one word. It means hope. That's essentially Star Trek in a nutshell for me. It's hope that we can all be better than ourselves that we can all work together and that we can build a better future. That was the, the initial appeal of it to me, because I was a very serious child, was the philosophy behind it. It wasn't the, although I enjoyed the, uh, you know, the phases and, and the ship battles and everything, it was about listening to Spock talk about logic and, and the captain talking about passion and things like that. And what is the, um, your favorite iteration of the show? Deep Space Nine. By quite a, quite a margin. <laughs> well, uh, we're on the same wavelength. And, and sadly, I mean, uh, in a way, it's kind of sad that uh, the Borg do not appear on Deep Space Nine, even though that's what we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. Well, there was, uh, just very quickly, there was one novel appearance, and there was a rejected Star Trek script for that to happen in Deep Space Nine, the TV show, but we can come on to that. I know that they sort of traded, uh, when once Voyager was up and running, that, you know, the Borg will, would belong to them. Yeah, and, and the Q as well. So no big loss on the part of the Q, but uh, <laughs> uh, at the same time, you know, the Borg still have an important incidence on Deep Space Nine, which we'll get to. And, okay, so what's your favorite character? Uh, this is going to sound like I'm, I'm blowing smoke or something, but it's Cisco. It's Captain Cisco on Deep Space Nine. In the overall lore, it might be Spock because that appeals to the philosopher in me more. But in terms of just 
a really good character. It's it's Captain Cisco. Very good. And what's your favorite alien species? Again, it's kind of two answers. It's just a bit of a cheat, but it's Vulcans because of the philosophy. But I think again, weird because of the philosophy. I think it might be the Jem Hadar because they're such oh. a they're such a strange construction that that they're. I mean, they're, existentially speaking, they don't have any choice, and yet once they break free of their conditioning. They still don't really have any choice because they're literally bred at the DNA level to be killing machines and to be drug addicts. And there's no way out of that for them, which philosophically speaking is, and I'll stop using the word philosophical from this point, I promise, is <laughs> fascinating because they've almost got nowhere to go and they can't even evolve biologically because they're pre-programmed. So it's, a, it's such a strange case of them being slaves, no matter what they do. I mean, they really are kind of damned i mean they even look like demons which is kind of appropriate that's interesting okay well cool i mean um you went for the you know all in on d space nine <laughs> uh in your answers you actually you had some that i haven't heard before it's only 19 episodes in but still yeah you had some interesting ones all right let's get to the borg not your favorite species apparently but uh still uh, an interesting element in the, the star trek universe origins of this pseudo species i mean can we call them a species really well that's that's interesting because the borg have got about seven or eight different origins uh if you actually sort of go deep into the non-tv law so it sounds to me from q who that they might have originally been a species that they went and assimilated loads of others and are now now a genuine collective but they're not a genus that's the thing that they might have become a species through methodology rather than biology. Yeah, originally they were meant to be in the original concept. They were meant to be insectoids, uh, and that's what the, the the writer of the Neutral Zone, where we see the first pit, where an outpost has been rooted out by presumably the Borg. Uh, they were supposed to be an insect species, and then that was too costly. So when they were brought back, uh, they were made into a cyborg species, which was a lot more cost-effective. Let's say it makes them seem like they're a copy or a ripoff of uh, the Cybermen from Doctor Who. Thank you for saying that first. Just thank you for saying that first. You know, because it's controversial or what? No, no, no because because I wanted it was just such a it's such a palpable point because the Cybermen get overlooked because obviously Star Trek is it has better production values for most of its life. So because I, I I've never seen an interview where the creators of the Borg mention, reference the Cybermen at all. Although even though Next Generation has a number of Doctor Who references, but usually on the production level, like in the the design, the graphic designs, and they'll have little Easter eggs that have to do with Doctor Who. But I've never actually read, I, I don't know, maybe if you have, but I've never read an interview with someone that said explicitly that the Borg were at least inspired in some part by the Cybermen. I've, the closest I've come is reading some a kind of itinerant, fan mail and occasional Doctor Who magazine where you know fans have gone this is during the sort of dark period of Doctor Who where they've said you know the Borg are a complete ripoff of the assignment obviously the complaints didn't go anywhere but that's the closest I've come definitely no interviews though conspicuously even the way they interact with humanity or with other peoples is very Cybermen like uh, the, the Cybermen want to assimilate us as well you know it's very close and yet no real acknowledgement so it may be just sort of turned out that way or they were in, in, created to be insects. They were sort of supposed to be a sort of force of nature originally. And then, um, you know, you make design choices and that lead to the next step, lead to the next step. And next thing you know, you've got parallel evolution, which is very trick <laughs> concept. And then uh, that maybe they seem alike, but originally, the, like the original creators of it, the writer of uh, Q Who, 
never really thought of that or I don't know it's possible and there's also the fact that Gene Roddenberry had that rule for a long time of uh, no aliens that can't be played by people in suits so mm. probably a non-starter anyway I mean I don't even know how they would have managed it on screen in the late 80s how about that basic concept though I think maybe the the Borg would become popular just because of the look not just of the guys but the ships uh, you know that big cube is very striking And it speaks to the way their minds work. I mean, geometric shapes, very basic, very functional. They don't need to be aerodynamic because they're not designed to go in an atmosphere. And they're completely faceless. They look the same from every angle you view them from, which is essentially the sort of collective intent of the Borg. There are no individuals in it. And so the ships shouldn't be even remotely different. Whereas with the Federation, you've got they've got different names and different sort of ways of uh, being laid out and what have you. But a Borg cube is a Borg cube is a Borg cube. You never know which one you're facing. If they're facing you or not, really, if you think about it, no matter what angle you're coming from, you're facing the full force of the Borg. When we discussed what we were going to talk about on an episode, you brought up the Borg as a possibility. Is is there, do you have a uh, special connection to the, um, well, I'm, I'm still going to say villains, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> with these uh, aliens? I mean, I was thinking about just what they represent and what have you, and, and obviously their relationship with technology and what have you. And... It struck me, there's lots of different angles you can take with the Borg because, I mean, are they Big Brother? You know, everyone's thoughts are constantly being shared. No no Borg has anything like privacy and they all live together in these faceless alcoves. So there's that expression of it. I think if the Borg had been around in classic Trek, they would have been communism. They literally would have been the sweeping force of communism, you know, collectivism and everybody working to a common goal, but there's no individuality, no freedom. Because like I said, they're, they're the Borg collective. And the collectivity was a big thing, obviously, in Soviet Russia as well. And Classic Trek was was very big on alien races representing modern political enemies. And there's also there's there's a, a weird streak of like Kantian positivism to them, which is Kant's idea of a moral framework, Immanuel Kant, was that concepts applied morally if they were universalizable, which meant if everybody acted this way and it was consistent and worked, it was morally defendable. It was, it was a worthwhile endeavour. So the Borg basically have in their ideology, they, and this is a literal quote from one of the Borg, from, from Locutus, we seek to raise quality of life. And they do that by making everybody of one mind so there are no arguments and no conflicts, which means strictly speaking, if you go by Kant's uh, universalizable concept theory, the Borg are not only villains, but you could argue they're even conceptually, and I, I do mean this in the literal, just conceptually, not in reality, they're conceptually almost heroic. Because the Borg, although obviously they do it against your will, the Borg do bring peace and they do bring harmony. Now, it's a forced harmony and a forced peace. But at the end of the day, if everybody was a Borg, there would be galactic peace. And you could argue from a certain point of view that that's completely valid. Now, obviously, to us, it's abhorrent because we believe in individuality and and freedom and self-determination. In fact, Picard says that's the whole basis of the Federation. So, yes, it's horrific from our point of view, but from the Borg's point of view, they sort of see all these other species running around being horrible to each other and being quote-unquote immoral and chaotic and outright cruel. For example, put it this way, the Borg have no class, so every Borg is equal. Now, I'm sure we'll come on to First Contact where that gets a bit nerfed, but the Borg are a completely classless society. Everybody is equal. Granted, everybody's a drone, but everybody is equal. Everyone contributes the same amount to the common good of the Borg. Every Borg is educated to the same degree because everyone shares in the collective pool of, of knowledge. No Borg ever starves. No Borg is ever homeless. Uh, no Borg is ever, in the society sense, left behind or looked down upon. So... 
from a certain point of view, again, you could argue that the Borg are genuinely a form, a very bleak form of utopia. But from within the Borg collective, they're certainly not a dystopia, although they don't love, from a certain point of view, for want of a better way of putting it, they do have a very equal footing and a very equal appreciation, shall we say, for each other. The qualities you give them, the positives of the Borg, when you, the way you put it, are really, if I didn't know any better, you could be talking about the Federation. They're a mirror of one another, because even as recently as Star Trek Beyond, the, the third J.J. Abrams film, the Federation is accused of being an assimilator in that film. It, it, you know, it, it attacks the Federation values, and we've seen that in Deep Space Nine as well with the character of Eddington and the Maquis and uh, that not everybody wants your utopia and you're, you're just setting up the, uh, you know, your allies with the Cardassians who were horrendous tyrants and, uh, you know, genocidal murderers in an effort to eventually assimilate them and that everyone will eventually see the light and want to be part of this federation, that you, you're assimilating other beings, other cultures into uh, what is more of a patchwork, let's say, than a melting pot, you know, a more Canadian <laughs> version. <laughs> of of that idea than, than the U.S. version. So the, the Federation is also an assimilator. It's the idic philosophy. Our differences are what make us stronger. And so you, you have to accept and embrace differences. The Borg are doing the same thing. They're assimilating other cultures, other technologies, other biological... To bring themselves closer to perfection. Mm. To, to increase their whole. So they're also... They're doing the same thing as the Federation. Uh, except they're doing it in an alien way that that seems more evil to, to us. Yeah. But it's it's the same idea. It's militant idic, is it? It's militant idic, if you like. Yeah, they're like the radicalized, you know, federation kind of thing. What you sacrifice is freedom and individuality and self determination. You know, we might even say that the way as federation members, let's call us that, that we evolve or a culture evolves because of people going their own way, doing something different. Whereas the Borg have to kind of wait for others to develop new technologies or new ways of thinking and then assimilate that into their whole. They're not evolving so much as waiting around for other people to evolve uh, and then absorbing those ideas. Which in a way, I guess we could say that we do the same as individuals where no idea is born in a vacuum. I don't know. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I didn't invent my uh, Android mobile phone. So you could argue, you know, on, on a very basic level, individuals do take technology from each other and God knows writers steal ideas from each other. So, so on a very sort of like uh, low level, that does go on in everyday society. And, you know, you hear things and you pass them on and what have you. So, so yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. The big difference between the Borg and the Federation is... Although, yeah, the Federation are, are assimilators, I think they'd probably call themselves embracers rather than that, because you aren't forced to join the Federation. The thing that stands out to me is that by Next Generation's era, and slightly after that, the Klingons don't join the Federation. They're allies. Mm -hmm. So... And the Federation do tolerate the fact that the Klingons are, they're an empire, which means they conquer other planets in their sphere of influence. Although we never see them in the TV show for, for obvious reasons of budget and what have you. The Federation does sort of allow for that, even though I would imagine that's kind of anathema to their charter. But also within the Federation, case in point, the Jurans, I think, do eventually join the Federation in Deep Space Nine. And so they aren't going to be told, OK, you're now part of the Federation. Your militia is now part of Starfleet, etc., etc. Oh, and by the way, because we, we've assimilated you, you now can't, can no longer worship the prophets. You know, you can no longer have Vedex and things like that. So they don't do that. Whereas if the Borg come along, 
you're not given a choice, you're assimilated, and there are no VEDEX anymore, there's no profit worshipping. That knowledge is in the database of the Borg, but you can't do it anymore. That part of your culture, even though it's recorded, is dead. That's uh, one huge difference between the two cultures. Yeah, you're right. One is um, is militant and uh, gives you no choice because it is so convinced of its own usefulness and, you know, its own direction. Whereas the Federation is also convinced of this, I think, but because it has as part of its own philosophy, the, the you know, the prime directive and the, the non-interference and the people have to sort of come to that themselves. Yeah, the Federation are more smug than and the Borg are like absolutely certain because they're running a program. But it, they are mirrors uh, to my mind. It's the reason why I think they work so well as antagonists we can use that word without using villain <laughs> antagonists where they are meant to represent the federation gone wrong the other way of doing this that would be way over the line i don't think the shows necessarily play with that parallel much but it's definitely there as well as you know the that trespass of the you know the wrong side of technology the because the federation or the starfleet relies on technology quite a lot the show relies on these technical marvels for it to work you know the borg also use technology to achieve their ends and maybe goes too far how far do we go into technology before we lose who we are is i think the question that that can be asked yeah i mean uh picard's quote we work to better ourselves and all humanity i think the borg could say exactly the same thing obviously replacing the word humanity but we were having the same sort of ethical viewpoint but obviously the federation doesn't have the the uh, body horror side of it and the fact that the borg are sort of technological vampires towards the end you even have those tubules that inject the nanoprobes into you which is basically a vampiric bite it's the functional same thing so they're both trying to raise quality of life but one uses technology to force you to be like them and the other tries to use technology outside the body to achieve basically the same end and of course the the borg have evolved over time as a story construct. So, I mean, they've retconned quite a few things into their history and modus operandi. So the Borg that we first meet aren't necessarily the Borg that they use later. No, not by a long shot. They really go through... I think they go through devolution, if I'm going to be honest with you, but, I mean, I mm. guess we'll come on to that. Really, there's a tease at the end of the first season, barely acknowledged as actually being the Borg, uh, but then uh, in Q-Who, Q decides to show the, you know, Picard that they're not ready for what's waiting out there in uh, in the galaxy, and he jumps them to the Delta Quadrant, where they meet a Borg cube, and that's where the adventure begins. But at this point, the Borg are really are a force of nature and they're only after technology in that there's no mention of also wanting to assimilate biological units no and they even have uh, Riker and that away team go on board the Borg cube and show you they show you that little baby that's in a sort of Borg crash I suppose I think it got the functional equivalent of like what looked like looked to me like a bit like a, a matte black painted Walkman put over its ears because obviously it's a baby they used a real baby so they couldn't put anything real on it but Riker postulates that the Borg start as biological life forms and then start having bits added to them straight away, suggesting that they have a, a rather stronger biological component than what comes along later on. As you rightly said, uh, they start off purely after technology and not caring about the life forms at all. They make literally no attempt to assimilate any member of the crew for that whole episode. They just take a, a corkscrew to the hull of the Enterprise. Yeah, that's it. Uh, and of course, it's, it's all meant to be Q's little gambit there, you know, you, you even have to question whether are these Borg really meant to go on and become more major players down the line? Or, or are they like one-shot uh, antagonists? Because the way it is, I mean, 
you almost have, you say you they devolved, they had to nerf them almost immediately. They had to give them different goals or, uh, you know, make them less powerful over time or else they would have overrun the Federation long ago. Yeah. Although I did, this has been a problem with me for the episode q since I watched it. And I just use this podcast, if you don't mind for me to sort of vent this. Go for it. Q's postulate is, you're not ready for what's out there. And then he flings them, I can't remember many thousands of light years away, into the Delta Quadrant, the system J25, and they meet the Borg. And it's like, well, yes, Q, they aren't ready to meet them because they wouldn't have met them for literally hundreds of years. So... Correct. Like That's like giving a caveman an atomic bomb. Yes, they're not ready to. They haven't got anywhere near that stage yet. So his idea that you're not ready for what's out there is a bit erroneous because, yeah, of course they aren't. The Borg are so far in advance of them and they aren't going to meet them for hundreds of years, during which time Starfleet will have advanced. So it makes no sense as an argument. Great episode, but as a as an argument, really does not hold water. <laughs> like a lot of Q's little plays. But, but it, and th- at the same time, he's the cause of... I mean, that event will make the Borg interested in humanity and then move into our space sooner. Uh, you know, by the best of both worlds, there's a cube that's come just because they've met the Federation and they're, they want to assimilate us. He caused the history to skip forward so to speak. You're not ready for these guys and then just because he makes them meet them, they have to be ready for them. And I think that's part of that's part of Q's gambit. You know, if if we look at and Q's should be a whole other episode, but you know, Q is trying to shape Picard in in a way. Uh, all these little pranks he pulls on him or uh, just the the trial and the trial never ended, blah blah blah. It's like he's re- when he's doing this, he's actually making Starfleet stronger or more prepared for when the Borg actually do show up. He's sort of like forging them into uh, a stronger weapon against the Borg, preparing them for the inevitable. Uh, So he seems to be harming, but maybe he's helping. It's the cosmic equivalent of uh, drop and give me 20. He's (laughs) he's making the Starfleet have this workout uh, so they're ready for the the big uh, assault course that's to come. Because even Picard says, maybe Q did us a favour. What we needed most of us a kick in our complacency. Because during season one and season two of TNG, the Federation is genuinely utopia. They're like, they're just enjoying themselves, really. They're not being pushed by anything. The Klingons are allies. The Romulans aren't really causing a fuss. So it follows. I think you're absolutely right. I think Q is actually just being, you know, a, a particularly cruel gym teacher. And there's this uh, theory on the internet. Why don't the Borg overrun the Federation? Why don't they, you know, send dozens of cubes and then we're done? If they have time travel ability, which they show in the first Contact movie, why don't they use that ability to, to mow us down before we're even close to a threat. And uh, the, the what the theory holds is that the, the Borg are actually, just like Q, I guess, are grooming us for greater things. They don't want to assimilate us now mid-development. They want to assimilate us when we, we've evolved or technologically evolved to a point where it's worthwhile to assimilate that culture. So it's, it's like they're running these little incubators. So we'll send a cube that'll force them to find ways to combat our present abilities. And then when they use those weapons or shields or whatever, uh, then we can adapt to that. We can't think of that for ourselves. We must adapt to the outside world. And so we must use the outside world as a, a laboratory where we push other cultures into d- trying to defeat us. And then when they do that, that makes us stronger. 
because we either adapt to their technology or assimilate it. That's the running theory as to why the Borg can't be as powerful as they were originally presented or as they, they might be if they actually use all their resources uh, each time we see them. What do you think of that? It's a valid theory. I mean, obviously, it's you have to weigh narrative against sort of practicality just because the, the argument, why don't they just send a whole bunch of cubes, absolutely holds water, but also the idea that they're using basically chaos theory, if we can cross universe for a moment, a bit like the shadows in Babylon 5. They come over, knock over all the anthills so they get rebuilt better, and then the ball come along and assimilate those. So they want it to be worth their while. They don't want to come all the way across to the Alpha Quadrant and then have a bunch of species that don't have technology that that's, that's all that wonderful. So it absolutely makes sense. Although, don't tell literally every novel written about the Borg or comics about that theory because in practically every single one, because they have no budget, the Borg always do send like a horde of cubes, like a huge amount to uh, literally knock over, destroy everything and assimilate everything. So, but yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think in, in terms of their behavioral pattern, I'm loath to quote Joan Way, but I have to, because they assimilate rather than investigate, the Borg can't come up with any new ideas. So they want everyone else to have all their best ideas and when they're at the peak of their best ideas, they come along and, and steal them for themselves. So, yeah, the Borg are hacks, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least absorbing entire cultures because they do... We, we see, especially in Voyager, we see how they've already got... Or even after the battle at uh, Wolf 359, obviously they've assimilated individuals from the Federation worlds at that point. So they've already got our biological distinctivenesses, the, whatever technology was on those ships... It's, it's not like like they don't have everything we have. It's just that they haven't eaten the whole meal, let's say. They haven't wiped us out. They haven't maxed out on their drones. There, there's just so much room on a cube, you know. <laughs> so uh, in reality, the Borg could simply eat, you know, one ship from every species, one member of every species. And basically, they'd have what they're looking for. But what they really also want to do, or eventually, that's what we're told they want to do, is turn us all into them. So um, Cyberman-like. It's not just about assimilating our distinctiveness but it's about assimilating cultural genocide but then of course you if you want to tell more borg stories which the borg were popular enough for us to do so you've got to mix things up and you've got to give them uh new weaknesses and one of these i think is the the whole de-assimilated character uh, it starts with hugh in IHU, uh, who shows up again in the descent and in descent you know he's infected others a few more Rogue, Borg are not part of the collective. And then eventually that will lead us to Seven of Nine, who will be a regular cast member on one of the shows. So, is this the ultimate nerfing? Well, it's interesting you say that, because I actually thought, I was going through, you know, the various points where the Borg are, are nerfed, and quite severely. And I, I actually thought the first instance of the Borg being nerfed was actually in Best of Both Worlds. I actually think Picard, as Locutus, is the first sign of Borg nerfing. Not just because he gets de-assimilated, uh, because those are quite unique circumstances, and so within like an overall narrative structure, that's completely valid. But the fact that after, and we're told, thousands of centuries of Borg relentlessly marching onwards, even though that gets contradicted a lot in Voyager, mm -hmm. the fact that when Picard assimilated, one, he's given a name, two, he refers to himself in the first person as I, and three, the fact that, other than in novels again, in canon... At no point in any of their multiple appearances do the Borg ever choose somebody else to be a spokesperson for their species before assimilation. So the fact that they're first meeting with the Federation and they're already changing their tactics, or at least appearing to be, is, I think that's nerfing of the highest order. The exact moment 
when he says, I am Lakutas of Borg, rather than we are Lakutas of Borg, is the first sign that, oh dear, we need to depower these guys really quickly because they're no longer a faceless collective. They're a, a huge collective, a vast armada, backed up by one person who they've chosen because they look like you, despite them all being humanoid, obviously for budgetary reasons, using a familiar face. Now, you could argue this is the Borg for some reason, and I don't quite get how this would work, but the Borg being very naive and thinking, oh, well, if it's Captain Picard asking us, telling us we're going to be assimilated, then that's okay. Because it's a friendly, familiar face, and we all love Picard. So it's okay if he tells us we're going to be assimilated. Well, it will go willingly. And I can't wrap my head around what the reasoning behind that is of, of the Borg being so sure of their perfection, suddenly changing their mind and saying, no, let's have a spokesperson. Well, isn't that antithetical to the fact that you're a collective? Because every other time you've spoken to the Federation, which granted at that point isn't often, it's this faceless wall of bodies. No one person is speaking. Everyone's speaking. So I don't get what they thought they were going to get out of it. Now, I know narratively it's because, in the meta sense, Patrick Stewart, I think, was talking about potentially leaving Star Trek, and this would be a way out. But but in the terms of the in-universe, this idea of it being so terrifying that it could happen to any one of us, because before this point, no one we know has been assimilated, obviously. And so this is genuine, terrifying body horror that our, our best friend, well, literally our captain slash father figure into the Star Trek universe as at the time, is now one of them. He's been turned against us and he's no longer himself. So I get so from that point of view, it, it made sense. But just um, I, that to me is the first sign of Borg nerfing. I, I always like to win a no prize. So since then, I think our our various fandoms have become much more in tune with the uh, timey wimey solutions. And <laughs> and if you if you look at the entire Borg canon, then we have to include first contact, which has a time travel element, and we have to include that one Enterprise. Uh, episode regeneration, regeneration in which yeah. in which the you know basically the wreckage uh, from first contact is still way in the past of the federation and uh it infects a few people and you know it starts assimilating and these proto borg from archer's time will supposedly send a signal out to delta quadrant yeah so let's say that this has all happened because time is... Uh, it happens later, but then let's say it's already happened in whatever version of the timeline that we're actually watching. And the Borg Queen, or the Central Nexus, gets this information sometime between Kyuhu and the Best of Both Worlds. And they've got information on the fact that the Picard defeated them in the past. You know, that the Enterprise E was present and all of that. So let's uh, take Picard out of the equation. Let's attack now, you know, preemptive strike. And let's let's absorb Picard into our collective. And hopefully we're changing history, their own history from later, that we don't know has to happen yet. And they fail. And then their history happens no matter what. The battle at 001 happens and first contact, all of that happens. So it's a loop. I can play around with, go back and just retroactively make sense of it uh, some of the time. You know, that's one way to explain a way why they changed their modus operandi all of a sudden. And maybe that first cube that they met was on a particular mission and it's not, not the same kind of mission where they're assimilating worlds or just catching ships. Uh, that kind of thing where you don't need a spokesperson. Uh, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, there's there are ways around it if you want to play that game. But uh, you're right. Every time we saw them er early on, every time you see them, we're sort of learning new information that doesn't necessarily fit what we saw before. No, I mean, obviously they didn't have the entire uh, backstory, for one of way of putting it, uh, of the Borg. Uh, the Borg were not a fully formed culture when they created them in Q-Who. So it's been a no sort of weird pun intended. 
but they've bolted things onto the board every single time we've seen them. So there's bound to be the odd contradiction. I mean, if your theory is true, if I put my Doctor Who hat on for just a moment, it's a little mm-hmm. bit like the two Dalek timelines. You have the Daleks without Davros, and then the Doctor goes back and effectively accidentally saves Davros. So that he's now in the timeline and the Daleks are like 10% as effective as they were before. And, <laughs> and the same is true, I think, possibly with this timeline. I mean, even though I really have, I really like First Contact, when I actually analyse it, it doesn't hold a lot of water. And giving the Borg time travel kind of doesn't undo their credibility, but it's, but whenever you bring time travel into a villain whose who's MO does not cover time travel at all, I mean, the Borg are just this, were this force of nature. And now they can time travel. It's like, well, They've got infinite do-overs to reassimilate anything that wriggles away from them, kind of a thing. But I like the idea that the reason it all happened is a sort of circle that they're trying to they're trying to unravel the knot of why can't we get the Federation? Let's try this. No, okay, we've got this pre-knowledge from our drones in that failed attempt. We got their information. Okay, let's go back and try this. So possibly the Borg went back to try and undo first contact multiple times and they just keep tripping up. They're in like a gigantic existential groundhog day that actually covers from post-Best of Both Worlds all the way back to First Contact in a constant loop that's slightly different every time, but the board can't quite get it right. And they sort of cause their own defeat in the loop because if they don't assimilate Jean-Luc Picard, then there's no Locutus. And, I mean, Picard uses his Locutus knowledge to defeat the Borg in First Contact. So, yeah, and, and Locutus is... And I don't know when they started having a Borg queen, I guess earlier, because Seven of Nine as a child... Yeah. Knew of the queen. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And let's just, yeah, yeah. Best not to uh, unpick that too much. Locutus and the Borg Queen are similar in, in function. Eventually, if you're going to use the Borg, you're going to have to have a character to interact with, an actor to interact with, or else it's always going to be that booming voice. And there's not a lot of dramatic potential in that. I, you know, I understand why they had to change it and maybe they had, didn't have enough foresight at the start. But what do you think of the, the queen as a character? Because she's not at all in personality, not at all like the drones or any of the other Borg. Well, yeah, that's part of the issue, I think, because the reasoning the writers always used was it's a hive mind. So they're like ants, which means they'll have a queen. Or, or bees, I suppose. And the flaw in that theory is the queen in a... Let's use a beehive as an example. The queen in a beehive is more important than the other bees, only in that they have the whole thing with the honey and the actual breeding function. So they're not in any other way more individualistic than the, the drones. So I completely agree. From a dramatic narrative point of view, you have to have a one-to-one interaction point with the ball because first contact would be basically a big shoot 'em up and have no real drama in it at all if you didn't have the Borg Queen. The problem is the writers didn't write her as a particularly interesting character because they had her as this seductress, which, okay, so this force bent on assimilation of cultures and technology also know how to chat people up as well and (laughs) and kiss them and snog them. And we don't know what else she got up to with Data I don't want to know if I'm going to be honest. The weird thing is, I don't know if they were hanging a lantern on it or what, but when Data is saying the Borg are a collective, they're not an individual, and she says, here's the line. You imply a disparity where none exists. I am the collective. Fine, but then Data says, An interesting if cryptic response. Yeah, it is cryptic, because it doesn't make sense. She's like trying to seduce Data by giving him human flesh and human responses, and she's effectively making him less like the Borg. Perhaps I should rephrase the question. From a, from the point of view of, even though I, I, I didn't really like the retcon overly much, she interacts with Picard and she was there on the Borg cube. 
when he was looking at us and all that stuff, fine. But the function she serves is great. It makes sense and it was necessary. But the way they write it doesn't make any sense at all because she's so unlike the rest of the Borg and she speaks with her own voice. Like, even if they put in some resonant effect, so it sounds like she's literally speaking with all the voices at once, would have made her a bit more dramatically appropriate. But I don't really get what the point of her is, because she doesn't just assimilate things. She seduces, she has schemes to undermine Federation history, and things like that. And her plans are not very Borg-like, at least from my from, from my point of view. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think she turns them from a monolithic hive mind into a cult, because it seems like all these Borg are following her, and she's in charge rather than her being like more of a sort of a facilitator rather than a dictator. You know, if there's a collective consciousness, then each Borg is a cell within that one being. And she's sort of supposed to be the mind of the entire thing, which doesn't hold up in later stories with Seven of Nine, you know, who appears to have her own autonomy, uh, even when she's still part of the collective uh, and can speak and whatever, or, or Locutus in, in that sense as well. Uh, she's uh, if she's the mind, and then the whole Borg collective is a composite personality created from every assimilated being, which I accept. I, I can accept that that she's basically the the voice of the entire thing, and that somehow her personality is constructed from every personality ever absorbed by the Borg. It's still a very strange personality to have based on those parameters. The entire galaxy is sexually frustrated. That's the only kind of thing of like literally the galaxy is very sexually frustrated. Like I understand that it may be if she's a manifestation of the Borg's desires or objectives to assimilate and she does it by seduction because the Borg don't seduce. They just take what they want. So right there it's a strange way to the same idea but we don't see it in any other other cells. No other manifestation of the Borg is like this. And even when, this is Alice Creege's take on it, uh, but when she's played by Susanna Thompson in uh, in the Voyager, uh, then the Queen isn't so much like that. She's much more robotic. Yeah, yeah, very much more in line with the Borg, overall Borg actions and attitudes. There's a strange mother-daughter thing with Seven of Nine. and I mean, By creating individuals within the collective, it goes against the whole concept of it. It's dramatically useful, but then we keep seeing the Borg change. And, and you know what? Again, I'm going to try to win a no prize here and say that faced with the Federation, which is, seems to be this enemy that they can't quite lick, or Alpha Quadrant peoples or whatever, we're always going on, or at least our characters are always going on about freedom and individuality and uh, self-determination and all that. Would the Borg not then think, well, maybe this is useful. If we absorb humanity and they so want individuality, if individuality is that important and it is a determining factor in their evolution and their success in evolution, then shouldn't we also partake in individuality? Shouldn't that be part of our matrix as well as we strive for perfection? And then so you create these little enclaves within uh, individual drones or, you know, the queen or even once they're going into the seven of nine, you know, having designations like that. Then you're saying that that drone has a specific function, is part of a specific group. You know, that designation, that one number is pretty generic and yet it is specific to you. So either they always had an individuality just not one that we un understood too well, or else they decide to become individuals because that is what the Federation is bringing to the table as a trait that succeeds. <laughs> wow. Uh, I, I am. I, let me, I'm going to pick my job off the floor because if, if I'm in power to offer no prizes, 
I'm sending you that on empty envelope right away because that's a very neat pricey of talking around what was essentially a big writing whoops in the face <laughs> of Borg evolution. So, no, well done. I doff my cap to you, sir. I would not be able to stretch my brain to such an oblique angle as to justify them essentially just nerfing the Borg and saying, well, they're not that much of a collective. I mean, they're kind of like a loose organisation. Some of them have got names and they do their own thing over here and we've got this virtual thing over here. And But no, well done. It's my only talent. <laughs> Let, let's let's uh, give a few minutes to Seven of Nine. I mean, this is the character that we saw. She was on the show, what, four years? Yep. The Borg are so popular, so popular, that, of course, we knew we'd meet them in the Delta Quadrant eventually. I mean, that's... A foregone conclusion why Voyager would even go there. But to have a Borg character on the show, even though like one separate from the collective, but one who could play the, you know, the Spock or the Data, uh, even though they already had the holographic doctor. <laughs> Let's put another robot on the show. Another mirror to humanity. Another person interested in humanity in some way. What did you think of Seven of Nine? I, I know you're not a big Voyager fan. Neither am I. But um, I think Seven of Nine was probably the main draw during those years uh, you know it really gave life to that show for a lot of fans i think uh, not to sound crude but obviously like as many people said she was the eye candy as well so that was obviously an element of it i see the way your pupils dilate when you look at my body but i think the problem with seven of nine is she is essentially as a character she is a massive peak behind the curtain because she's an ex-borg she knows, you know, in quotes, knows everything the Borg knows. And so everything she says about the Borg is an insight into them that we wouldn't have got otherwise. And I'm trying to think how best to put this. She doesn't exactly humanise the Borg, but everything she says about them gives them feet of clay. Especially when you have episodes where she gets her individuality back earlier on, and then she, but she freaks out and, and goes back to the collective. And when you have, I mean, Unimatrix Zero is, I just, I don't have the words to describe how, how feeble a plot that was <laughs> it really was just terrible that was just like when the ball go to sleep boys and girls they're individuals again and they're happy and they look like themselves it's only when they wake up and face harsh reality that they're back to being bloodless assimilating and killing machines that will take your soul away from you and make you one of them and yeah well only some of them only some, had sorry. the genetic yes yeah of had the genetic predisposition every star trek uh, antagonist race you know from the tng era on always had to have some dissidents there's always like, you know, like, oh, the, the Vulcan, the, you know, not the Vulcans. Well, even the Vulcans had their terrorist group. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're supposed to hate the Cardassians, but there's, they've got a faction within them. They're, you know, yeah. the Romulans, oh, there's the unificationists. Uh, everybody had this little faction that humanized them. And I think that's, that was the attempt for the Borg to have the, these, this rebellion, drone rebels uh, meeting up in the Matrix. I didn't think that worked at all either. I just also, just as a sort of side note, it was one of my favourite, oh my God, Janeway, you are a terrible character moments, when at the end, when they're proposing what they're going to do and, and, and liberate some of the Borg and make them individuals again, uh, someone says, oh, aren't you creating a Borg civil war? And Janeway goes, I prefer to think of it as a resistance. And I remember thinking, yeah, I bet you do, Janeway. That's much more palatable for your mind. You don't have to have nightmares about the fact that you're causing a species to tear itself apart fighting itself. No, it's resistance. They're brave resistance fighters. Janeway was... To my mind, because, you know, the this was my process with 
Voyager or all of Star Trek, really. When I started my blog, Siskoi's Blog of Geekery, some 12 years ago, I was intent on having daily content. And to make sure I had daily content, I decided, oh, I'll just spend two years watching and reviewing one episode of Star Trek a day from the cage all the way through to, I guess, what was the end of Enterprise. Or And there's since been some movies and Discovery. Here I am watching Voyager, which was not my favorite show in the first place. Not the show that I'd watched, you know, as frequently... You get to watch a lot of Next Gen and TOS on syndication, and and, and I had. But Voyager was not the show I wanted to revisit, particularly. (laughs) Uh, I did not have fond memories. It was later on, a bit of Trek fatigue. So I'm watching every single episode day by day. And so you're tracking the evolution of the show and the evolution of the characters on a daily basis, which gives you a certain perspective. And I had to admit, by the end of the third season, that Janeway, I, you know, my memory of Janeway was not a good one. But watching in the first three seasons, I kind of liked the the sort of mumsy, you know, she was kind of funny. She was, you know, I liked, <laughs> I liked Janeway the first three years. I did. And then the Borg ruined her. When the way they started writing her as soon as she hit Borg space is what destroyed the character. And what we remember of Janeway being this arrogant character full of hubris who thought she could basically destroy the Borg and by the the, the end of the show will have this character who everybody's going, even the, the Borg expert uh, is saying this is a bad idea. You know, once, once you've got Seven of Nine on board, uh, she's saying we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that or we shouldn't go there. And Janeway is always disregarding this. And she's always kind of moaning that she's alone and that nobody wants to follow her orders. And I mean, she's the only reason those aren't mistakes that she makes is that the script proves her right. Yeah, yeah. The script, yeah. the script wants her to be the superheroic captain that's better than all the other captains that we've loved to the point of making us resent it. And I think really the once the Borg... Uh, are there once it's very desperate once she ha- she has to be seven of nine's mother more or less uh, she becomes a f- character that's difficult to like that was very well and very politely put and again i doff my cap to Cisco <laughs> because you know i'm not given to swearing in, in my normal life but were i describing the same period of time in voyager and the same effect that uh jane we had on the script and vice versa i would probably use some colorful metaphors because you're describing the point at which Star Trek, for me, didn't just jump the shark in terms of captaincy, but pulled the shark out of the water, pulled all his teeth out, and hypnotized it to forgetting how to swim. Because that first episode is uh, Scorpion, part one and yes. two. It kind of spawned what I call in my reviews, because I revisited the text in preparation for this, and what I called in my reviews, um, season finale Janeway. And season finale Janeway is that this crazy woman who goes against every suggestion and recommendation and warning and does what the hell she wants and uh, somehow succeeds and maybe she's got a good plan but she won't explain it to anyone i mean it's it's just bad writing is what it is what you call season finale Janeway, i used to call um james t Janeway because she had the sort of bravado of kirk but without any of the kind of she didn't have like the backing of the crew but she had the sort of arrogance of kirk at his worst and he's like yes i'm invulnerable i can do anything except not as likable. So in, in a way, the Borg legacy on Janeway is really to have destroyed the character. And I think the the end of all this, I mean, Seven of Nine remains an interesting character throughout, part and parcel because of Jerry Ryan's performance 
and look for some, you know, some people, you know, yeah. I'm sure tuned in because she was a, the sexy Borg. But more than that, she's a very emotional actress. And, you know, there, there was something to that character. And during the, the later seasons, one of Voyager's sins was concentrating almost exclusively on the same few characters. Yeah. Uh, while others never even got a you know a story arc, so it, it was always Seven and the Doctor and sadly Janeway, um, and uh, you know <laughs> it was always those three, and then maybe Tuvok and Paris would have something to do, and then the rest, well, not so much. But by the end, you know, it all has to end on a big Borg finale, and that that Borg finale is terrible, you know, with Admiral Janeway in the future. Yeah, Voyager makes it back, the biggest mass murderer in Star Trek history, and somehow. You know, we have to believe now that even though we've had this epic struggle between Picard and the Borg in Best of Both Worlds and in um, First Contact, these remain the, the top shelf Borg stories. I think you'll agree. But Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. But then Endgame is the, the last one. Is, uh, you know, you, you've got to believe that uh, Admiral Janeway, 16 years in the future, decides that, um, you know, the, the, the couple people that died on the trip... She has to undo all that. She has to undo 16 years of travels. She's got to undo 16 years of history and unhelp all the people they probably helped in those 16 years. Uh, and then winds up destroying the Borg or, I mean, close to it. Yeah, crippling, crippling them because there was actually a, a documentary called Unimatrix Zero that came out shortly after the end of Voyager. And the writers involved make a big point of, because one of them says, oh yeah, she destroys the Borg. And then another one corrects him and goes, well, doesn't wipe them out, but, but cripples them, deals them a, 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 a nasty blow. So they sort of like try to catch themselves because you could very easily read it as when she poisons the Borg Queen with that neurolytic pathogen, that's the end of the Borg, which would have been a real travesty to wipe them out that way. Oh my God. Yeah, because they blow up the transwarp conduits, yeah. which would you know make them unable to, or they'd have to rebuild their fleet and all of that. But so, so Janeway not only succeeds where other captains have failed, uh, or, or never tried. I mean, <laughs> well, put. yeah, she she succeeded at something no one else would have been mad enough or stupid enough to think of doing in the first place. It's just again, I mean, that's one one of the reasons that people resent Janeway so much is the, you know the writers overegg the pudding. It's just too much. It's too superheroic. It's just compared to all other like it's a terrible end for the the Borg getting nerfed until they're so easily beaten in a, like a one-shot deal that also gets Voyager home that doesn't cost a soul. I mean, it's there's no real cost to that action where uh, it should have been horrendous. I mean, if we're going to defeat the Borg, it's gonna, it should cost yeah, lives. Yeah, should... exactly. They should have got to the point in the episode, I think, where they've lost so much of the crew. It's like, do we keep going with this action? It's cost us so much to have this chance of getting home and stopping the Borg. Is it worth it? Or should we just stop and you know go back to the original timeline as it were and just do the long route home instead because we're all going to die if we keep doing this but no they just sort of dance between the raindrops don't they so what are we mentioned the two top shelf uh stories but what are our favorite borg episodes or moments well i think obviously best of both worlds is, is still stands out this is gonna really really you may end up hating me for this one of my favorite borg moments and I lean literally in the sense of a moment because everything that followed I didn't like. But one of my favourite Borg moments is, bizarrely, the opening pre-credit scene to Scorpion Part 1 where you've got the three Borg cubes coming along and they do their spiel of resistance is futile, you'll be similar. And then they just get blown up with no effort at all by what was revealed to be Species 8472. And that was such a powerful moment. That's not my favourite moment. I'm doing, I'm doing it in ascending order. But that's such a powerful moment. Okay, by that stage, the Borg was still top dogs they were still the most dangerous antagonists in star trek as 
as far as I was concerned at that point. Nothing could really stop them. They hadn't really been nerfed at that stage at all because by that stage, I think it was just it was just a TNG contingent of episodes and they'd not really been in, in Voyager. But that scene where it's just this unstoppable force gets stopped and not just stopped, but annihilated, I thought was such a powerful moment. And it remains one of my favorite pre-credit sequences in any Star Trek. I don't, I don't disagree. Uh, I think that's, uh, uh, I mean, it's a great teaser. And Scorpion in general, except for the, you know, Janeway going off the deep end uh, as a character, still introduces uh, Seven of Nine in an interesting way. I mean, the whole episode actually, well, the two parts of the episode actually stand up as far as uh, looking cool and doing something interesting. Of course, the Scorpion in the story isn't the Borg, it's Janeway. So that, <laughs> yeah, of course. That's how I reconciliated. But uh, that short-lived alliance with the Borg to get through their space, uh, which would be a lie, really, because Borg space because of transwarp conduits. It's everywhere, really. Yeah, it's everywhere. So you have to cross Borg space again and again and again, eventually. But, you know, that story as a, if it had been the only Borg story in Voyager, it gets you 709 as a cast member, but otherwise, you know, worked fairly well. It's just, it had to have lesser sequels. And also, just a side note, the fact that objectively, no, that's not fair. Subjectively, but almost objectively, Janeway makes the wrong decision in helping the Borg defeat 8472. If you actually look at the logistics of what that entails for the future, it was a real bonehead move because you can talk to 8472, you can't really talk to the Borg. So not let them get wiped out. In the long run, kind of disastrous. So what else? What else? Um, iBorg is a favourite of mine, although probably not for the reasons that a lot of people have. I was fascinated by the progress of this Borg drone hue and what that actually meant for the collective. And I don't know if it counts as nerfing or not, but two big elements in that episode. Hugh was originally whoever he was, you know, Joe Blocks, and then he got assimilated at a very young age, which I think was a calculated move to make us feel more sorry for him in the show, but that makes sense. And then somehow he becomes an individual again whilst being a Borg drone because he can't hear the collective anymore. Okay, great. I mean, that narrative is, 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 is lovely. And, and the bit where they're going around in the sick bay saying, I'm Beverly, I'm Geordie, I am Hugh. It was a weird, cuddly, feel-good moment when you consider this poor kid has been taken from his family, mutilated, and had his individuality deleted, and they somehow made that sweet on some level. I don't know if that says anything about me or not. But ultimately, he goes from individual to drone back to individual. What fascinated me about that was, is he the same individual that he was before he was assimilated, or is he effectively a whole new creation? Is Hugh anything like what he was like before he was a Borg? And I just found that really, really interesting. And the other thing was, uh, again, the sort of weird moral conundrum that Picard has, because Geordi invents the uh, impossible shape to be introduced to the Borg, which will destroy them. And two things from that for me, that shape actually latterly became known as the Endgame virus in the novels and what have you. So so as a shorthand, I'll refer to that as that. But Geordi creates this Endgame virus that will destroy the Borg, an implacable foe that is basically unstoppable at this point. And he does it in about five minutes. Okay, He's got very little time. Unless we assume he was working on it from best of both worlds onwards, possibly, but that's still not a long time to be working on it. He creates this incredible weapon that's, let's assume for the sake of argument, it will work. Okay, let's not go into the debate of, well, maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe the Borg have got like, you know, Norton and they can block it. The fact is, uh, he's created this incredible weapon. And I remember laughing out loud because Picard goes, oh yeah, that's quite inventive. And I remember thinking, He's created this amazing weapon that'll have no collateral damage, no civilians will get hurt, it'll wipe out the, the board completely, and you're going, oh yeah, quite inventive, mm, adequate, well done. And I just, it blew my mind what an ingrate Picard was for that. It's like, Picard, do you remember you were assimilated, and they uh, basically tortured and mutilated you? Geordie's giving you the means to wipe them out, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, 
not bad. Again, the, the huge moral debate of should we use this? Not quite the same, but functionally in, in Earth history, it's the equivalent of maybe should we use the atomic bomb on Japan to end the war, killing a whole bunch of civilians and innocents, but saving a whole bunch of lives on the other side of the, of the conflict. And Picard obviously chooses not to use that virus, which says everything about Picard. And funnily enough, weirdly, everything about the Borg, because if the Borg could drop like a nanoprobe bomb on a planet and assimilate everyone at once, they would do it in a heartbeat. They wouldn't think twice. And I think that was an interesting reflection of the philosophical similarities, because both could come up with this idea, this super weapon, but one would use it and one wouldn't for diametrically opposed reasons. And I thought that was, it was just such a quiet moment. Apart from his ingratitude, it was just such a lovely quiet moment where Picard goes, no, we're going to use Q as the weapon and we're going to let his individuality, the thing that makes him like us, against them. As you were saying earlier, the idea that the Borg assimilate individuality into their perfection because they see it as this thing that, well, if it's so important, it must be worth having. And so that leads to seven of nine type situations. But um, that's why I Borg, although probably the quietest Borg episode that's ever been done, I think is also the most impactful. Although, I actually wanted to ask you this. This is a chance for you to earn a no prize. Picard actually tells the Federation about the virus, okay? Because Admiral Nechayev mentions it later. She says, you are now obliged to use any and all means to wipe out the Borg if any come up. Which I, I'm fairly sure is probably against some Federation law. You know, she just said, you will commit genocide if you're given the chance. Do it or else. So Picard obviously told Starfleet Command and Nechayev knows about it. So that virus still exists. They obviously didn't delete every copy because at that point Starfleet would have said, uh, give us... Every Starfleet ship. Okay, here's, here's the no prize situation, just to summarise. Why does every Federation ship not have the Endgame virus on their ship, lest they meet another Borg and use it to transmit it to wipe out the Borg? Why do they not use Because just because the Enterprise didn't use it, doesn't mean any other Starfleet captain wouldn't use it. I mean, can you imagine, again, crossing the streams a bit, someone like Prime Lorca gets hold of it against the Borg. You know, they'd, he'd use it. Why didn't Janeway use it in Voyager? And and, and I know this is, this is a retcon, but I'll, I'll throw it in for an extra level of bonus no prize section 31 now they were willing to commit genocide against the founders by using a virus they come up with if they've got a similar virus that they could use to wipe out the borg why wouldn't they use it why wouldn't they dupe someone into being assimilated with that virus somehow contained inside them and wipe out the borg once and for all there you go siskoid uh, no prize me that one please <laughs> well the simplest answer is that the virus doesn't work oh you dirty dog yeah they never tried it so maybe it doesn't work maybe maybe when Picard says we're not going to use it, he's not going to give the rest of the Federation or Starfleet the chance to use it. We're not going to use it and then just pass the buck along to the next captain to, to make that decision all over again. Uh, he would have... You don't think Starfleet Command would have said, can we have a copy of the virus just in case? You know, wipe it from the files, Jordy. <laughs> you know, that, that could have been it. This moral quandary isn't so much should we use it as should we even have it. That does fit with Picard's personality. I can see him. Uh, it's like with, with data, you know, not handing data over, not handing uh, lal over to the state kind of a thing. Yeah, that does fit. Okay, I grudgingly give you the, uh, grant you the no prize because that is fitting <laughs> with Captain Picard. I can't remember feel they could have reconstructed it because it's impossible to delete a computer file completely pretty much. But yeah, okay, uh, okay. Let me throw out one of my favorite Borg episodes and because it is similar to I, Borg. And it's the Voyager episode, Survival Instinct. Mm. This is the second... Second episode of the sixth season. So this is, you know, once Deep Space Nine wrapped, Ronald Moore moved over to Voyager. 
And he was one of the principal writers, he, you know, showrunner on later on on Battlestar Galactica, which is a masterpiece in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, and on uh, Outlander now. So Ronald Moore starts to write for Voyager and uh, he hates it. <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll leave within weeks. Uh, he'll be out of there, you know, not the kind of uh, writer's room environment that he enjoyed. But he is one of Modern Trek's best writers. And uh, it shows in the beginning of the sixth season, the first two, three episodes are actually quite strong. And some of them are written by him. So that's where that comes in. And I think uh, I'm allowed to like these episodes more. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Survival Instinct is the one where uh, Seven of Nine starts having a flashback from her past as a Borg. And that at at some point, like Hugh, she was disconnected from the collective. Uh, Her and, you know, a small, like a a small cube, like three other drones. Uh, They're they're stuck on a planet, uh, campfire with Borg. She panics. They all start to remember their past, but she doesn't have as much of a past because she was assimilated as a little girl. So she's more Borg, let's say, than they are, more loyal to the Borg or more used to the, the life of the collective and at the end of that flashback uh she uh remembers that she she's the one that reassimilated them they, they were all sort of free and then she reassimilated the group into the collective and herself i thought that was like a brilliant way of the, the problem with seven of nine being a part of the collective and the collective being a single entity is that normally even though she was disconnected she should have the guilt you know of all those assimilations, you know, all those genocides, cultural genocides. She should have that, that the guilt of the entire collective on her back, which she seemed to have, but you can't connect to that as a viewer. It's, it's an abstraction. But here we saw how she, as a human being, disconnected, she assimilated three people. She bolted and went back to the collective and forced three other people into that. This is a guilt that we can connect to. This is a murder of personality that she did commit knowingly, not as part of a collective where she has no control, but where she made a choice and chose the collective out of fear. And so that this is a bit like Iborg, where we have a drone with no real personality of its own having to work out some feelings about individuality. Uh, but she made the opposite choice that Hugh makes or wants to make. Yeah, and I guess, parenthetically, Hugh hadn't been a Borg that long because he looked like quite a young person. So I suppose it's the opposite end of the age spectrum, whereas Seven had been a Borg a long time, but a human for a very short time. Hugh had been likely a human for not that long anyway. So so they had a different perspective on the whole voice of the collective appeal. Any other uh, Borg moments that uh, we want to highlight? My favourite Borg line, if that makes sense, is from Best of Both Worlds, and it's, it's not their usual thing. It's the point where Picard is saying, my culture is based on freedom and self-determination and would rather die than be assimilated. And just when the Borg come back and just matter-of-factly say, death is irrelevant. And that is hugely important, I think, to the Borg mindset and, and the sheer horror they bring. Because if they take you even in death, you know, you don't even have the escape of dying. They will take your corpse and turn you into a Borg. And literally nothing you can do to them. At that point, they were still truly a force of nature. And the fact that they can not subvert death exactly, but certainly get around it. And the fact that they're so, I suppose they can't really be glib exactly, but they sound so glib about it. That was when I, when I first heard that, I was like, oh my God, this is not just a, a physical threat, but philosophical and a sociological and an existential threat as well, because they don't just take your individuality. If your death is irrelevant, they almost can sort of take your soul as well. I thought that was so well done. And I don't know how much thought the writers put into that about the implications of that line. 
But as something of a philosophy student, I was really impressed with that line because it's true. And it's the scariest thing about the Borg in a lot of ways, at least to me. Maybe at the beginning it was supposed to play into the, these are techno zombies. But by the end, I mean, in Voyager, it is revealed that um, the even if you die, all your knowledge, all whatever you were, is absorbed into the remains in the collective. Uh, I think Seven of Nine has a line to this uh, effect where she says that basically no Borg ever dies. You remain in the collective as a, well, not as, they wouldn't say a spirit, but uh, as your pool of knowledge and self. She says, yeah, the, the Daleks, are, uh, the Daleks, I do apologize. Can't have it <laughs> The Borg are functionally immortal, I think is the last line in that that you're talking about. Yeah, functionally. But in any case, once they uh, assimilate you, there is a loss of personality. So there is a loss of self. So can we say that, you know, the drone, your drone self, which is just information shared among units, that remains. Uh, yeah, okay. But, you know, to my mind, your personality, your yourself is already dead once you've been assimilated. The assimilation process kills who you are. Or it doesn't kill it because, I guess, de-assimilated characters can return to some semblance. I mean, you know, Locutus became Picard again. Yeah. So it's dormant. I don't know how much of that survives drone death. Picard is really, I mean, the best of both worlds, which you mentioned there, is perhaps the most important TNG episode ever story, since it's two episodes, in part because this will have so many, so much impact on the rest of Trek or modern Trek. So that you have, it'll lead into all those Borg stories, but it will lead into First Contact, which is the better TNG film. For sure. It has a, an important impact on Picard himself, but it's also got an impact on our favorite captain, Cisco, because it's the battle of Wolf 359 that's featured in The Best of Both Worlds. Yes. That basically launches Deep Space Nine or launches his character arc uh, that makes him of interest to the prophets. And so he becomes the emissary. So, um, you know, there, there no Borg in Deep Space Nine except the very, very, very beginning, which starts at that battle. We don't really see much Borg action. It's just the consequences. And one of the best actual ship battles, I think, in the TNG era, just as a side note. Yes, and you don't need to see a whole lot of it. It's just the, the devastation afterwards, you know? It's it's very strong. And then we see parts of that in Emissary, that first, that Deep Space Nine pilot. Cisco is shaped by the Borg, and uh, even the, the, the Defiant, which comes in much later, uh, it was created to fight the Borg. It's a design, you know, a warship built to destroy the Borg. Deep Space Nine owes a lot to even that one story. You know, not just TNG, not just Voyager, which used those concepts a lot, but Deep Space Nine as well. So I think as far as modern Trek goes, that's a super important story. I wanted to ask you a question about, about the Defiant. So Cisco is in charge of like the Utopia Planitia shipyards of Mars or important in it. And he says in the opening of season three, he's, he's worked for years on designing the Defiant because it's designed, we needed a warship and we needed something that could take on the Borg, something of real teeth, something that could fight the Borg. You know, and there's all the stuff about what O'Brien working out the kinks and he's overpowered and what have you and all that. Now, when it finally does get to face the Borg in first contact, <laughs> now we don't know how long it was fighting, so it could have been fighting on its own for ages, waiting for the other ships to come up. We, we don't know. But on screen, it lasts about, what, 20 seconds? And Wolf is going to ram the Borg cube, do every bit of damage he can and sacrifice his life and the sort of seemingly one remaining crewman, who uh, was a lot braver than me, because when Morph said, ramming speed, I would have been, are you sure we could just get to the escape pods? No, we're going to die gloriously. <laughs> Do you think Cisco, when the Defiant gets dragged back to the Space Nine for repairs, 
Cisco was like, well, that was a waste of five years of my life. That didn't do any good at all. And then the Enterprise E comes in and does all this damage and unifies the fleet. But do you think he was a bit disappointed in the Defiant or or even in Worf's performance? I just I, I would love to hear your opinion on that, considering your ties to the S9. <laughs> well, it's never revealed, uh, which is too bad. But um, no, I, I mean, just because you design something to do something doesn't mean it'll work. There are other Defiant-class ships, but not a whole lot. So there were design problems with this little ship. If it had worked, if that prototype had been a good Borg fighter, then uh, maybe they would have you know, made a whole fleet of them. Maybe they would have made bigger versions of it, improved on it. But I think that it is a, an abandoned design. Uh, so, so when Cisco asks for it, because he needs to protect Deep Space Nine, yeah, yeah, you can have that. I mean, it's not... <laughs> we don't need it on the front lines facing towards the Delta Quadrant. You know, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah. He does say the ball became less of a priority, which I don't really get, but I suppose they've, you know, they're still out there just because they defeat one cube. Suddenly it's like, well, we dealt with that cube. There's probably, they've probably only got two. Let's, let's not worry about it anymore. If it did become less of a priority, it probably was like abandoned before being properly finished. But I just imagine Cisco sitting on Deep Space Nine with his like long range communication scanner watching the battle just going no wolf what are you doing oh my god just uh <laughs> you know what do they call it um armchair quarterbacking well uh, when we talked about the uh, cisco's leadership style uh i think we we went over this that well we didn't talk about this specifically but that he is not a micromanager his uh, his style is that he trusts the others uh the people in his um in his crew. True. That is true. No, okay, yeah, okay. That's a pseudo no prize for that. I suppose that makes sense. I just imagine <laughs> him though. I was just thinking like there's got to be some fanfic out there. If not, I'm going to write a comedy skit of Cisco watching from Deep Space Nine throwing popcorn at the screen as as uh, Wolf prepares to ram his prize ship into the Borg cube, just screaming, "No, Wolf, no!" Well, speaking of fanfic, it's not fanfic, but at some point the the novels and the comics and all that aren't part of canon. Uh, but there are a lot of Borg stories. Are there some cool, great Borg stories out there for for people to to dis- rediscover or discover? There are some. I mean, as with Borg episodes in in the TV show, they they run the gamut between oh my god and fantastic. Uh, I mean, do you want to start with Vendetta because? You've read that one as well, I'm aware of. Well, Vendetta is the one where, um, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler, is it? I don't know when it's revealed in the book, but (laughs) it deals with the Doomsday Machine from the episode with that name uh, in TOS and its origins. Where does this, what was this thing for? There's another one crossing Federation space. And it turns out that this was built by ancient aliens to fight the Borg, that they're cube eaters, I guess. Was it not the preservers? (laughs) Did they not... Say so it was the preservers. It maybe, yeah. I I don't remember the uh, and and this was reused in the uh, I I noted it in my research. I haven't read the books, but when the recent TNG books, the Next Generation relaunch, as they call it, yeah, uh, does have a storyline with the Borg where they use a doomsday machine to fight the Borg. Yeah, yeah, and also a Vendetta. Although it's, I mean, like you said, the novels in those days weren't necessarily much to do with canon at all but they do pick up on one of the points we made earlier of why don't the borg send progressively more cubes and in vendetta they send five cubes which logically i mean you know despite your no prizing it did make sense that they would send more this time and two get destroyed straight away i think by the doomsday machine but this is the the uh, an instance of somebody being de-assimilated from the borg as well but it doesn't really work this time because there's an accident with a force field and the person who gets de-assimilated 
loses one of their biological arms and she's non-responsive up until this point and then they put a cybernetic arm on her and she smiles because her brain isn't really free from the collective and so she's happy for the first time because she's got a robotic part and it reminds her of being in the in the collective and I thought that was a uh, a nice touch another logical extrapolation from it is they create another spokesperson they assimilate a Ferengi uh, but they call him Devastator which it's not good diplomacy. I mean, you know, I'm your spokesperson for the Borg. You're going to be assimilated. What's my name? Oh, it's Devastator. Yeah, don't read anything into that. Okay, it's all perfectly peaceful. It's not going to hurt. Just, just you know, it's like falling asleep. But yeah, that was a weird... Because Locutus at least means one who talks. So that makes sense. But Devastator's a bit... Well, I think everyone knows what devastation means. So you never really understood that. But again, that was a really good non-canon novel. But the thing is, the Star Trek TNG or prime universe novels full stop now have a slightly different relationship with canon because from the point that nemesis happened and sort of ended that era of the franchise the novels were kind of like given free reign uh there was like an editorial mandate of okay you can kind of to an extent you can do whatever you want now with the prime timeline because we've got the kelvin timeline now and that's the visual version of it there's no more tv shows particularly being planned so you know go hog wild you've got all kinds of crazy stuff going on and it's great and you do feel like the writers are much happier being able to do this. And one of the things they actually do is, and spoilers if you haven't read these novels, I guess, there's the Destiny trilogy, which actually ends the Borg once and for all. And not only that, it gives you their origin. Now, I say origin in quotes because the Borg origin is very confused and these are novels, so they're not on TV or movies, so they're not official, official canon. But um, you get this race called the Kalar come in and what have you, and uh, essentially... Some humans get sent back in time and mixed with this technology, and that's what creates the Borg. So it's human; it's the fault of the humans. So there's even more of a time loop involved now. And it's a huge war, and essentially, in the end, the Borg get assimilated into another collective, but one that's evolved and advanced and peaceful. So the Borg threat is ended. The important bit is Picard, basically, when it's all over, Picard falls down in his chair and starts crying, and he says, I can't hear the voices anymore, I'm finally free. And it's a really moving moment. It's very well written. And Seven of Nine's few remaining bits of technology on her fall off. And she has a similar moment. And it's 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 a really good way of ending the Borg threat because basically the Borg have this huge philosophical shift where they think, OK, the Federation have defeated us time and time and time again. And our usual tactics aren't working. And then we had Admiral Janeway come back, destroy a transport conduit. So we are rethinking from the ground up. We are no longer interested in assimilating the Federation. And they send a fleet of 5,000 Borg cubes to just wipe out the Federation and the Alpha Quadrant. Literally, they destroy. They don't assimilate anything. They just destroy, 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 destroy. And whilst I probably would have hated to have seen this on the TV, in the novels, it's hugely exciting. The death count is like 63 trillion or something like that. And it's it's horrific. And there's a genuine cost to it. And they get stopped. I remember breathing a sigh of relief when it happened because it was it was so... As a trilogy, it really holds together. Uh, there's a TNG novel. There's a Titan novel, which is Captain Riker and, and his crew. And there's another one which focuses mostly on Esri Dax's ship, the Aventine. And I hugely recommend them, if, especially if you're a fan of the Borg. Because the other big Borg defeat in the books, uh, which is feels barely canon, especially in light of this, is uh, The Return, the, the William Shatner. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> in that, the, the Borg uh, ally with the Romulans... And they have their own spokesperson. There's a uh, Vox yeah. is the name of the, the Romulan Locutus. And uh, whatever, the, they're the reason why Kirk is resurrected, Grom in a vat or whatever. And uh, it ends on the Borg homeworld. Kirk basically defeats the Borg all by himself. And 
there's a lot of wonky, weird, you know, there's there are Borg dogs and Borg uh, mecha, and they really play around with, you know, that feels like fanfic. William Shatner's fanfic about Kirk returning to life and defeating every big bad ever in the Star Trek universe. Well, the Shatnerverse novels, basically, Kirk is the only manly man in it. And, and Starfleet <laughs> is reduced to, like, a bunch of effete bureaucratic snobs who, who've never been out there and seen any action and don't know what it's like on the front line. And it, it's, yeah, William Shatner's novels nerf the Federation, basically. He's, a, he's superhuman in those things. And, and if I remember correctly, and I don't know if it's that one, but in one of the Shatnerverse novels, doesn't it turn out that Kirk is actually responsible for the Borg existing in the first place? Because his theory is, is that Vija is the origin of the Borg. And like when the, right. when Vija disappears in the motion picture, it doesn't just go out into the galaxy. It goes back in time for some reason and starts the Borg. And Decker is like effectively the first Borg. Yeah, yeah, that's from that book. I think it is. Yeah. You know, that's why it feels like fanfic. It's just as much continuity as possible. And Captain Kirk is almost literally William Shatner's Mary Sue. It's, <laughs> he's yeah, projecting yeah. Well his ego into this vessel. Yeah, I mean, most of the Shatnerverse novels are essentially fan service. I mean... The Borg and the Romulans team up in one, and he faces the Mirror Universe, Janeway in another. Yeah, you're right. He is, he's his own Mary Sue, which really says quite a lot about <laughs> William Shatner, I think. Perhaps a podcast for another time, because there's a lot of psychology to unpick there. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a possible episode. Last thoughts on uh, the Borg before we uh, part ways? One thing, despite the fact that they appear to be this constancy, they have this undeviation, they absolutely aren't. They actually turn out to be a huge mishmash of contradiction, opposing philosophies, uh, evolution, devolution. They change their MOs almost from the start. Case in point, one final thing, and this is not a dig at Voyager, but if Captain Janeway had just said, right, we're coming up on Borg space, the Borg assimilate civilizations and cultures. We're one ship. They'll probably ignore us and just kept going. They could have avoided an awful lot of stress on themselves. <laughs> just, wanted, just wanted to add that. As a sort of uh, final point. Oh, I'd also recommend checking out, it might be hard to get now, but way back when DC were publishing Star Trek Next Generation, they did a four-part series called The Worst of Both Worlds. Oh, yeah. And that was basically, yeah. what if they didn't rescue Picard? All I want to say is the way they actually, I mean, obviously they saved the day. That's not really a spoiler. But the way they saved the day is incredibly clever. They get Picard back by appealing not to the human in him, but the Vulcan in him, because he'd mind-melded with Sarek at that point. I just wanted to mention that, because that's one of my favourite tiny little narrative twists but yeah the borg are not what they appear to be at all whether it be bad writing retconning or just the fact that they didn't plot out the whole thing from the start you think that this is one thing as you said earlier an unstoppable force of nature but actually they're a pretty motley crew that look scary they're, they're, they're like the bullies in the schoolyard and if you stand up to them a lot of the time they back down and that's that's literally true in the case of the borg so uh if you start watching the Borg from to, from today, you'll see this whole sweep of, of uh, psychology and philosophy, and the Borg as a collective are a mess. And I mean that in in a very entertaining, positive way. I don't. I'm not saying don't watch these episodes or don't enjoy them because I love them. But even I, even me as like a you know dime store psychologist and philosophy student, they are a mess. So yeah. Best to stay out of their way. Uh, very good. Uh, Ryan Blake, why don't you uh, tell us where people can find you on the internet? I can be reached uh, on Twitter at RyanBlake235. My podcast, Crap Tonight, which is Kryptonite spelt with an A instead of a Y, can be reached on Twitter at CrapTonight235. And we also have a WordPress blog, which is just WordPress.com, uh, Crap Tonight, where we review science fiction and fantasy. There you go. More of the good stuff. And, uh, well, I guess... Um... 
you have to uh, fly off now. Well, one of Voyager's infinite shuttles, because the time difference here is uh, is brutal. I have to travel back in time to meet myself. I'll stick around to do uh, subspace transmissions. That's Star Trek news and your feedback from the previous episodes. Thanks again, Ryan, for uh, spending this uh, hour and some change with me. Thank you kindly. Grab tonight is... The dream given form. Grab tonight is... Primitive culture. Grab tonight is... Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Grab tonight is... The beat you can dance to. Grab tonight is... A big fat woman with thighs the size of a hippo's. Grab tonight is... A podcast featuring two guys talking crap about sci-fi fantasy. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or even Twitter at craptonight 235 Just look for Crap Tonight. It's kryptonite, spelt with an A. In Star Trek news, Discovery Season 1 is now over, and perhaps I can give my one-minute review of the show by comparing it to three other shows. I would compare it first to Gotham, in many ways. Uh, Going from an awkward show, sort of afraid of causing too many ripples in the timeline, except visually, to, in the second half, just going for it, with mad revelations and crazy cliffhangers, and uh, while somehow managing to not contradict any of the canon again, except visually, using the full breadth of the Star Trek universe or multiverse. I would also compare it to Arrow. If you tuned in early and gave up on it because you didn't recognize the Starfleet values you loved, try to stay to the end. Like Arrow, it's playing a longer game where those values aren't taken for granted but earned over time. It rewarded my patience in that sense. And finally, it's a little like the first season of Torchwood, wanting so much to be adult but coming off as adolescent in its use of nudity, cursing, and violence. But there's some impressive writing in there too, tapping into thematic and metaphorical ideas I can't believe they missed across the previous 50 years. It's not perfect by any means, but it gets better and better until it ends on a high note. Puppet Master Games and CBS Interactive have launched a new online collectible card game called Star Trek Adversaries. It's based in Star Trek's Prime Universe. Adversaries features characters from all the shows and focuses on deck building and card collecting, allowing users to battle each other in a multiplayer or single-player campaign. Uh, It seems really anchored in ship combat. Mm. Uh, Check it out at PuppetMasterGames.com. I haven't, but I'm guessing, though it's free, you can pay to get access to better booster packs and such, much like the Facebook game or app Star Trek Timelines. Your feedback on episode 18, which was all about Len Wein's Gold Key Comics, a conversation I had with Nicholas Brom. Davides Gutierrez says great coverage of an oft-overlooked chapter in Trek history. The Gold Key comics are certainly an interesting product of their time, weren't they? Just like the UK Trek comics. This is what you get when there's no oversight. Uh, Chris Franklin says, fun episode, fellas. I remember my mom bringing me home a Whitman Dinah Bright Star Trek comic in the early to mid-80s. I didn't know what I was looking at. At first, I thought it was a Trek coloring book of which I already had a few. But this was full of Star Trek comics in full, vibrant color, hence the designation on the cover. It was like a Star Trek comic from a parallel world, nothing like the DC comics I was reading. But even then, the art captivated me. It was different than anything DC or Marvel were doing at the time, and those colors, wow. I still have that lone issue. I need to see if any of the stories are by Len Wein. Uh, Then we have Rob Kelly says, I had no idea the late, great Mr. Wein ever did Trek comics at all, let alone for Gold Key. Thanks for covering these. I can't tell what I like better, the beautiful painted covers or the super funky photo collage. Well, I like the mod photo montage too, but they got pretty repetitive after a while, so... 
it's nice to have both. He's followed by Ice D, who says, The insanity of the Golki comics will always have a special place in my heart. Uh, then Max Traver chimes in, saying, I'm sure I had some Gold Key Star Trek comics as a kid, but most of my Gold Keys were Turok, Magnus, and Disney books, I think. Still, I really miss Len Wein, and the episode was a great look into some of his work that I have no recollection of thanks. Future guest Scott X says, I have a smattering of the gold key issues, but not many. As you guys mentioned, the quality is a bit uneven. I do have one in the Ween run. Yes, Siskoid, you guessed it. Issue number nine, where Lincoln appears. And you can find Scott X on a number of Firewater shows, all of them about President Lincoln. And finally, Tim Price says, oh my, gold key comics certainly bring back some memories. I never saw their Star Trek, so thank you for enlightening me. Downright entertaining episode. Then some Facebook likes and shares from Adam Ackerman, Brian Cray. Brian Rosen says, that Spanish Inquisition clip came out of nowhere. Lol. Yeah, nobody ever expects the clip. Chris Franklin, Chris Tyler, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, David Is Gutierrez, Gotham Sharon of Pop to Pixels Podcast. Uh, J. David Weeder says, This was a great episode of a continuously great show. Is it odd that I think the transport chamber in Gold Key Trek was kind of a cool idea? Also, the novel Star Trek The Lost Years had an ancient Vulcan whose Katra was stored in an orb. The knowledge of many ancient Vulcans were stored this way, so their teachings could be preserved. So that's also something that's in the comics. As for the uh, transport chamber, uh, J. David, I guess you're not the only person to think that's cool because they kind of used it in the Star Trek spoof uh, on Black Mirror. Uh, then uh, who else? Uh, Jared West, Jeremy Gunter, who says Kirk's uniform was green to his eyes. I mean, this is, this is again, this is the black and blue, gold and black dress or whatever it is. Uh, Jonathan Brown, Martin Gray, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Max Traver, Mike Peacock. Nicholas Brom himself, Rob Kelly, Roger Prieb, Ross Michaud says, stumbled onto Gimme That Star Trek today, and oh, did I jump in on the right episode. Len Wein's Gold Key Talk brought back great 70s kid memories and kept me entertained on a snow-filled trek through Maine. More Trek Talk, s'il vous plaît, every first Tuesday of uh, of the month, Ross, Ryan Neely, and Shag Matthews. On Google, we got plussed by the hammer strikes. On Twitter, retweets and favorites from Abel Padilla. Between the pages, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Daniel R. Budnick, David Ace Gutierrez, Dr. G, Neurodologist, the irredeemable Shag of Firestorm fan. J. David Weeder here says, I'm thankful for Siskoid and give me that Star Trek for keeping me company on the commutes and easing my nerves with some fantastic Trek talk. Uh, John Coates, Justice's First Dawn, Kapapri Jordan, Kineas, Max Romero, It's Plastic Man, Michael May, Robert Patrick K, Rob Kelly, creative of Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, host of SADS, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, and MASHcast, uh, Scott X, Second Union, Son of Cthulhu, The 108th Sage, Tim Price, and Trekonomics, Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire and Water Facebook page, or on Twitter with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 